Today's episode is a conversation about food, including food access. As someone who has been food insecure several times in their life, I understand the stress that comes when your food dollars don't go far enough, or the frustration when the organization you reach out to has little to nothing left to give. If, like me, you have dietary restrictions or are a person with invisible illnesses or disabilities, these problems are compounded even further. Recently, I've also been hearing from a variety of nonprofits that giving is down everywhere. Even my local NPR station, which covers Washington, D.C. and the surrounding metro region, had to extend their fall fundraising campaign, something I've never experienced in the past. So today, I'm asking you to make a financial donation to your local food pantry or food kitchen. My understanding is that these organizations operate on the efficiency of scale, so by donating money, they can pool together those resources and leverage their buying power to purchase cases of food needed in the community. If you have cans and non-perishables you'd like to give, save those for a community food drive, or drop those off in a little food pantry if there's one in your area. However you can contribute to lessening the issue of food insecurity, you have my thanks and deepest gratitude. This is the Permaculture Podcast. Food. Something we think about regularly. Whether that's what we're having for our next meal, trying to remember the contents of our cabinets or refrigerator so we can figure out what we're going to cook, or what we need to buy on our next trip to the grocery store. As permaculture practitioners, these thoughts are also likely to include what we'll be harvesting from our garden, where to go to find a local source from a producer we can meet face-to-face, or reading labels to find the indicators of where something comes from and how it was produced. Each of us are also likely to have our own way to ask and answer questions related to whether or not the food systems we participate in and the food we take into our bodies are the right ones for us, our particular circumstances, and the planet. What if there was a uniform method, however, to ask and answer these questions? Something we could use in our own lives, which is also easy to share with others. A way to examine, consider, and discuss our food choices, whether the scale is personal or planetary, and covers the range from policy to production to purchase. This is the kind of model that forms the conversation for this episode. As I sit down with Gigi Berardi to discuss FoodWise, the system she's developed and writes about in her recently released book of the same name. In a conversation where I share my own complex relationship with food, Gigi talks about the passion for food that led her to write the book, her sources of inspiration, additional resources you might find helpful, how to keep ourselves informed and up-to-date on the latest food and agriculture, science and research, and, of course, she shares the FoodWise method. If you eat food, you'll want to listen to this interview. Enjoy the conversation with Gigi, and I'll join you again after. Then, Gigi, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to write your book FoodWise, and we'll take the conversation from there. Sure. Well... I was just talking to somebody yesterday about kind of my origin story, and it began at Cornell University a long time ago. And at that point, I was working on organic farming, um, wheat production, and I had to use the word so-called, the term so-called organic farming. I could not say I was working on organic farming to any of the faculty there because they would just take me apart. It was kind of that early in the scene in the 1970s. And I developed a course called Diet for a Small Planet and went through many 
iterations and basically it's a political economy, a food class. And I've taught that at 12 colleges and universities. I've had four tenure track positions and my latest (laughs) and the longest is at Western Washington University, Huxley College. So I've had a lot of time to think about questions around what is a good food, basically. That simple question. And my work relies heavily on experiential learning. And whether it's cheese making, I teach an art and science of cheese class, or it's water cisterns in rural Mexico, I teach a global learning program, or it's in a sensory taste science lab in Florence. We're asking what is a good food and what does it take to get a truly good food? So that sounds like I'm talking about the production part, but really I'm interested in the eating part and the tasting part and the choosing part. And Food Wise, my book, is really a book about not food, but food choices, how we come to our food choices, how we make our choices around what is a good food for us. And I draw heavily from my students who have fierce food beliefs. And in fact, originally, this was a book just on fierce food beliefs entitled A Cultivated Life. And the students are fierce in what they believe. And not just that, my friends, my colleagues, everybody, really. Michael Pollan tells a really good story where someone went in to see their cardiologist who said, you're going to need, you know, triple bypass surgery and you're going to be, you know, under the drip for, you know, six months. You might be an invalid, whatever. And the patient says, lay it on me. But that same doctor says, eat leafy greens, get out of my face, right? I mean, so this is so personal, so precious. So much of our identity is wrapped up in what we eat and those chooses, what goes into the choice. So I became interested in what we're doing because the choices are not trivial, obviously on a personal level, but on a societal level, they pretty much influence what gets produced, what the demand for food is going to be. So if people are going to go down the anti-fat route, what does that mean for livestock production or integrated livestock production or integrated permaculture sites that include some kind of animal component to it? Where do we go with that? So I was very interested in the meat, no meat, fat, no fat arguments there. Then, coupled with that, I came across the work of Brian Wansink at Cornell University. He wrote the book Mindless Eating, and he wrote that on a sabbatical or on a Fulbright in France. And he was a super prolific researcher, and he was on Good Morning America and, you know, just also a populist in terms of his work, too. His argument was that we are mindless eaters in the United States. We just eat what's in front of us. And the cues that we take for eating are all external. Whereas in France, to grossly overgeneralize, in France, they're internal. Like people, shocker, eat when they're hungry. So I was really intrigued with that. And so I depended heavily on his work. But when I was into this project on fierce food beliefs and food choices, his work was retracted there were questions raised about his work. And so I veered away from that. And I have to say, even during the writing of FoodWise, I profiled studies and I profiled individuals, some of whom came under the scrutiny of their university for other reasons. 
and made the decision not to include them in the work. So it's kind of in a process trying to come out with some simple statements about some simple questions about food and what we're eating here. So the book was going to be about fierce food beliefs with a few recipes, but my editors said, eh, Gigi, we think you need to talk about agriculture. Like what I've been studying for 50 years, basically. I mean, really? In like 44 pages? No, you've got to do that. You're going to have to talk about all of agriculture also, besides all of how we decide what we're going to eat, besides recipes in a book that's readable. And I have to say the book is readable because it's won, not to blow my own horn or anything, but it's won 12 awards so far for the writing. So the book then had to, like all of agriculture, all of food choices and recipes, I then kind of conceptualized the book in terms of our shared world of food. That would be agriculture, permaculture, our shared world of food and our personal world of food. What's the deal with that? I tried to find the coherence in these different themes in terms of juxtaposing them in that kind of division. So yes, there is the history of agriculture of all times, in all places, et cetera, of all peoples in 44 pages, trying to fishing, the crisis in fishing, which I can barely talk about. And I have to say that my partner had a heavy hand in a few of these sections. And especially, for example, the one on sustainable fishing, like oxymoron. That's why it's kind of a lively read, but dealing with serious subjects about how important WISE, whole foods, whole farms, or integrated sites informed what is our source of information about what it is that we're eating and who is producing our food. Sustainable, not my favorite word, but it does fit with S. But I did think about putting S for sane, and then I thought S for seasonal. So anyway, sustainable for us as consumers, sustainable for producers, sustainable for markets, and E, the experience of producing food, of eating food, even if it means you just take a couple of sunflower seeds and put them in your house plant soil, assuming you're not dousing that with chemicals, and watch the sprouts grow and eat the sprouts, your microgreens. That is your permaculture zone zero. So experience is really important. Experience leads to practical wisdom, and practical wisdom makes us smart to do the right things. Whether we're talking about picking up um, a wrap at the local food co-op or it's about, you know, decisions you're going to make on a, you know, 14-year-old being caught for a first-time offense, doing something naughty that could land her in prison, or it's a medical decision that, that we've got to be wise, we've got to be smart about what we're doing. And rules don't get us there, regulations don't get us there, but the experience of making choices gets us there. So anyway, that's true for producing the food. As I said, it's true for consuming the food. So that's our acronym, W-I-S-E. And I was going to make it longer. I was going to make it like wiser. I was going to make it wise S. And then I get to add tasty, T for tasty, <laughs> S for seasonal. But it was getting too crazy. One of the folks who had a huge impact on me and many permaculture practitioners, Toby Hemingway, as famous and well-known as he is for Gaia's Garden, which is all about practical on-the-ground permaculture and growing food, 
But in the permaculture city, he talked about, you know, if we're not in a place to grow food, what are the other things that we can do to engage with the food system? With the reality that more than 50% of humanity lives in cities now, what does a food system look like? Or like when Philip Ackerman Leist was on and we discussed his book, A Precautionary Tale, he was talking about how they were saving the food traditions of this one community. And even more personally, I was diagnosed with celiac disease about 12 years ago, which changed my diet. I have a family history of diabetes, and so I have to be concerned about blood sugar. So it's all those appointments with doctors and dietitians to find a diet that works for me, then add a couple of other things that are comorbid because of celiac disease. And my diet is a mess. And many of the things that people might recommend in many of these spaces just are not viable just for me as a diet. And knowing that, I know that for other people, there are those influences as well. But also, like, how do we develop a personal way of eating when we also come from a particular culture, depending on where we live? You know, I come from a German family, and so we have, like, those sour tastes and those bitter flavors and the way that those tie into our decisions about the foods that we like to eat and some of these other choices. And just, yeah, food is, is this beautiful, rich, complicated question both internally for ourselves and the communities we come from and how that influences what we buy and what we grow. So I hear actually kind of two different kinds of questions there. One has to do with like the urban spaces and what's the deal and we can't grow our own food and whatever. And, you know, barely can't even get out of our apartments if we have an apartments or the encampment. So I hear that question, but then I also hear about you know, food is really complex. We're enculturated to foods, either on an ethnic or societal kind of community basis. And, you know, how much does that influence our food choices? And I would just say first to the second that, yeah, right on. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, good question. So that does come under the umbrella of fierce food beliefs. And I recently gave a talk on food wise and Scandinavian cooking. So on my mother's side, I'm, I'm Norwegian and I have been to Norway. So for the Daughters of Norway, for a local chapter, I gave a talk on Scandinavian cooking and food wise. It was a little bit of a stretch. So what I focused on was the fats, that the Scandinavian cooking is rich in fats. And that is food wise, depending on how it's cooked and how it's processed, those fats pretty much stay intact, you know, saturated fats. And there's a lot of sugar, but I will add the caveat. And then this is getting to world cuisine, if you will. I will add the caveat that what you can do to make it food wise, then in this case is add fiber, make sure you're eating your sweets with fiber. So in some cultures, which is the perfect example, people are going to non sugar cane. And, you know, it's a slow process and you got a ton of fiber and it kind of slows the whole digestion, digestion process a little bit. And you've got certain micronutrients being absorbed at different parts of the intestinal tract. I've got a gluten sensitivity, so I have to be a little careful. I'm very lucky that it's not more than that. But so in that case, but also in the food-wise case of eating your sweets, because it's kind of culturally the thing, this doesn't mean you have to be, eat a lot. I mean, you know, 500 years ago in our various cultures, people weren't chowing down on pastries. I mean, they were having, you know, some kind of like fruit sweetened 
you know, dessert, but they weren't like, you know, they didn't have a shovel and they weren't like chowing down on that all day long. It was like at one time at night when you were having a feast. So there is something about overconsumption of these foods. And I talk about this in the book. We have to be careful with health halos around or cultural halos. And in the book, I am all about my Italian upbringing and those dinners that drove my mother crazy that were amazing. But the health halo, the cultural halo around these foods, and just like stay on track here, you know, and remember wise, that's all you need to do. Whole food, that means food with fiber, whole food, whole farms or permaculture sites, integrated food growing places, plants and animals. That's the W. So does your food have that? Okay. Yes or no? I informed, do you know anything about what you're eating? I mean, really, and even if it's just a label, do you know where it came from? Do you know about fish? I was in a farmer's market the other day and I was picking up like a slab of smoked salmon. And I was not, I was not in Seattle, the Seattle Bellingham area. And then I said, oh, where does it come from? And they said, oh, oh, this valley. And I stopped and I said, is it farmed? Well, yes, it is, but it's sustainable and all of this and all of that. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I actually come from the Seattle area and we can't. We actually sign a kind of like an oath that we're not going to do anything with farmed fish. And so, I mean, ask. S, sustainable. How expensive is it? But then like, if it's expensive, why? Ask questions, you know, and then like experience. Have you eaten it before? Something like it? Do you want to? And you don't have to eat very much. Just remember that. So, I mean... I would, I would almost say in those moments of choosing food and kind of like with a reference point to some kind of cultural framework or sustainable framework or health framework, just go through WISC. And then with this fierce devotion to food, is there a particular way that you are looking at eating? You've mentioned fat several times, your sugars with fiber. So does that lead to a particular diet when we look at things like our carbohydrates, our proteins, our fats, and those sources? Or is it more about that wise and being in, informed and knowing where food comes from? I hear you. And I do get asked a lot, Gigi, so what's the deal? And I did hear that while I was writing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I actually have to say this. So, so I have a place in the book where I say, I believe whole unprocessed food is nourishing. I believe in making my own food when possible. I believe that the more connected I am to the source of my food, the more rewarding my experience, you know, that kind of thing. And then in terms of systems, I have a kind of two pages in there where I say, well, this is my food wise, traceable, regenerative, humane, focused on revaluing taste and biodiversity, focused on revaluing quality on revaluing cooking and convivial eating and characterized by access, resilience, vulnerability, reducing that. In terms of like, what's for dinner? What is interesting, I was talking to a friend who actually helped, helped me in one of the recipes in the book. And she has a beautiful website called Sweet Veg, Teresa Reland. And it's interesting because the book, you know, meat eaters say, yeah, this is interesting. And vegan folks like, well, yeah, like you don't talk about meat so much, but anyway, we were trying to talk about common ground in terms of like, what's for dinner? So what do you choose to eat? And what we agreed on was eat more vegetables. That's what the book says. Eat more vegetables because you have the fiber. And it's really tricky. It's one of the hardest things for us to do. 
to actually affordable vegetables, I mean, and how to cook vegetables and taking the time to actually chew the vegetables as opposed to a brownie. So I, w- I would say eat more vegetables, have some kind of saturated fat in your diet. And yeah, you can go to sustainable palm oil and coconut oil. Yeah. But like, where's that grown? You know, you have to use WISE. I would prefer dairy products. Again, you don't have to eat very much. If you do kind of make your food choices according to quality of food or taste, the taste sensation you're going for, those choices might be pricey, but you you don't need them all the time and you don't need a whole lot. And that's where it's taking these ideas and applying them to where you are, to your particular context, to make the best choices available to you that are possible, not like a hard prescription, because each of us have different experiences, different opportunities, different abilities to meet these needs. Yes, but also in a very gentle way, I am actually addressing the position of it's my body. I know what I want. It's like, I'm like, really? You're not in like a space craft right here. You are influenced by your peers and by the advertising industry. Hello. And I think that that gets us away from vegetables. I think it gets us away from choosing saturated fat And um, I think it gets us into low fat, but processed, processed fats, which no one is arguing is good for our bodies, but low in fat foods. You know, snack wells was the classic example. People were just chowing down on snack wells because like, it was like so good. Yeah, it's high in sugar and high in processed fat, but low in saturated fat. So kind of, so in the book, what I do is, I look at three kinds of science, and in a way, the book is actually a kind of soft ode to science and questioning science. And I say, look, let's look at three ways of getting information on food from a scientific perspective. The first one is epidemiological. And I I look at the work of Robert Lustig, who is a clinical child endocrinologist at UC San Francisco. He's since retired from that position, but his talk at UCSF, The Bitter Truth, went viral. And in it, he talks about his lifelong research about fructose, not necessarily high fructose corn syrup, but just fructose, fructose, and how it's metabolized so different than sugar. And giving your kid a can of soda is like giving your kid a beer. The alcohol is is metabolized so differently, and you can actually get fatty liver depending on what your load is of these high-sugar foods. So I look at how he developed his argument using clinical studies. And so that is one thing. Look at clinical studies. I mean, he also talks about the hacking of the American mind, Robert Lustig, and he has a book on this subject. We are all about the dopamine. We are all about the hit, you know, video games and sugar. And it was a very interesting book. But anyway, it's controversial, though. Let me say that his work has been critiqued. And I talk about that a little bit in the book. The second thing we can do is look at theoretical work on this subject, also very controversial, but fascinating to look at. And I look at the work of one researcher in the book at MIT who has developed theoretical arguments on how saturated fat 
is used in the body and cholesterol is used and manufactured in the body and when and which and what. And she's using computer science models as a basis and some nutrition to kind of develop these models. And she has these adapted models and she has maybe 20 or 30 articles, maybe a dozen refereed articles on the subject, super controversial. The upshot, eat some saturated fat. How much? Eat some saturated fat. And then the third is Jacob Lonnie, and I believe he's in West Virginia, but anyway, he's a sensory taste scientist. And what he does is he, using statistical studies, so sensory taste science and perception, and he looks at artisan foods. Remember, because the whole overarching theme here is what is a good food. He looks at artisan foods and he's like, oh, gosh, well, here's another here's another challenge for artisan foods. It's very hard to develop sensory taste profiles because they're not standardized. I mean, if you're making small batch and artisan, uh, whatever it is, you're going to walnuts in your you know zone eight or whatever i mean and they're going to taste different and they're going to depending on how and when you're harvesting them and how they're stored and so what do you do with that in terms of sensory taste science and then from there you quickly get to usda recommendations and purchases for school lunch programs a little bit of a leap but it's part of that and so he's saying that artisan foods you know it's a challenge because it doesn't have just one profile and not only does it change in terms of functionality, what that profile is, but the actual substances themselves change. So it's kind of complicated and I am inviting the students and I am inviting the reader to kind of look at anything that gets us away from this lens that we wear that is doused with confirmation bias and just stretch a little bit. And then yes, to taste to test, I mean, that's the experiment part, and to find what we like, and it is very individualistic, but also how we feel. But I'm also saying there's been a lot of co-optation, so it's gonna take a lot of testing with saturated fat if we're gonna get back to eating just a little bit of that with our veggies. It speaks to so many things that come to mind. I grew up in restaurant kitchens. My mother managed restaurants all of my childhood. And then, of course, I think it was the late writer and chef, Anthony Bourdain, who said, you know, why does my steak taste so good? Because I'm not your cardiologist. And talking about like all the fat that would go into a steak through like herbed butters and things like that. And also looking at 12 years ago when I was diagnosed with celiac disease, there weren't a lot of choices. There were a lot of whole food choices, but trying to have a diet that my family was familiar with was kind of limited. Meeting with a registered dietitian and the information that they had available was like, well, I can show you one thing or another, but I can't do a complex diet. But more and more of that information is becoming available. There's more research coming together. And this comes to mind because I just had a, a meeting with a registered dietitian. And for the first time, some of the things that I've been trying to address made sense. And she was not advocating low fat. She was not saying no saturated fat, get rid of your butter, get rid of your dairy, get rid of this, which was very different from where all this started, as I say, 12 years ago, where it was, well, get rid of all the gluten, get rid of all the fat. And, you know, most of those foods that were available were really high on the glycemic index because they were mostly starches that were super close to sugars. But now it is that conversation. If you're going to have carbs, eat some fats. If you're going to have some sugar or something sweet, combine that with some extra fat or some fiber or things like that. And it's 
Yeah, it's just interesting how much our understanding of food and the impacts on the body have changed just in a decade. There's some eating plan approaches that get rid of all sugar, all flour. That's not gluten, that's all flour. That's not wheat flour, it's rice flour and cassava flour and chickpea flour. And I know that sounds radical. And instead, there's a, a huge percentage of vegetables, a big vegetable component to the diet, but and there's saturated fat too, but in smaller mm -hmm. quantities. But what that does is really kind of highlight for us how we usually eat and mm -hmm. typically eat and what we usually grab and what's easy. And I know in terms of my digestive health, that it's really influenced by stress. I mean, that's not to say it's in my head and I'm imagining it. I'm just saying that it's complicated. So why not give our bodies and souls a break and start with good vegetables to begin with? And that's where going through this process for myself really made me have to re-examine what we might think of as a Western or American diet. And it is more about the inclusion of vegetables and making sure that it is a wide variety and knowing where they come from, understanding the amount of fiber that's in them and all these other pieces where I just don't know that I was taught a lot of those things, you know, or really came around to them. It was like, what do you want to cook and what do you want to eat? And in doing this most recent examination, understanding how many calories are in our diets and the sources where a lot of those come from and how that adds to things like the obesity epidemic in the Western diet, the availability of super cheap calories from processed foods. There's just a whole lot to it. But again, if we examine our diet and what we, I don't want to say should be eating, but if we're eating a calorie appropriate diet for our lives and lifestyle, then there's room left over because of the money we're not spending on the processed foods to get a lot of food into us that we can put towards some of those other things. Absolutely. When I am... I, yeah. So I, you know, besides eat vegetables, eat less processed foods. I mean, that would be kind of like, you know, the mantra and the mantra yeah. actually in the book is stop, think, then act. But those two items would be important. You know, at one point I went to a 7-Eleven, I put together a meal, a 7-Eleven meal, but I just thought it was too precious to include, but it was kind of cool. So like for like literally $2 and 75 cents, I had dinner. I was virtually foods wise. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it wasn't my cheese. But it was like, you know, Telemuck. And, you know, if people are really needing to depend on takeout, I don't see, I don't see the issue in buying two or three main courses, which are heavy on vegetables, and then have that for four or five days or, mm -hmm. you know, six days. Then you've got it already there and prepared. And you add a little bit of, you know, rice that is easy to cook and inexpensive or beans, easy to cook and inexpensive, even just if you're buying a can of beans at the 7-Eleven, you could do that too. I mean, if it's barbecued, wash them. And I mean, there you go with like ready-made food and not too expensive. And, and it's where I think a lot of us, we are in a place where we can eat well and eat healthy and eat a good diet, but it does take time to step away from the space that we're in to be able to make those decisions, to be able to examine where we're at, what our resources are, and what's available to us. And when we talk about food access and food deserts and have some of those other systemic conversations about food is that 
it can be hard to be in a place to think about that when we're running all the time and just trying to make it from moment to moment and to build in some of that slack. And that's where I come to conversations like this. There are some things that you've raised that I hadn't thought about examining when it comes to what are those foods available? How are the ways that I can supplement or add to some of these other pieces? Because I spend so much time cooking at home from Whole Foods. And I mean, for me, part of that's just because I, for a long time I had to, but then it is, how do we take our own experiences and be able to extend that to have conversations with people who aren't in that same place, but that we can help move them forward with these kinds of food choices. Exactly. There's a lot there. One big question is, whose job is this? The first is to understand how it is that people got to where they are, how it is that they were, that they were made to migrate and be an immigrant and end up in a social and political space that's deliberate in which there's very little of food outlets. And, you know, activists like really bristle with the idea of food deserts because, again, it kind of like is this idea like, oh, wow, desert. Like, you know, I guess if we just water it, get water into the desert, you know, get food into the desert, everything will be fine. No, you could make five more outlets available in, I don't know, parts of South Central LA and people wouldn't have a single, single more morsel of food available to them. You have to look at what are the real causes of this. And I can't say I completely tackle it, but I address it some in food wise. But basically, how did we get there? We don't begin the journey to tomorrow from the point where we are today to quote the great reactionary Garrett Hardin. So where are we with caste and class and these made spaces and uh, with poor infrastructure? And then like, I don't know, we juxtapose the vote with your fork. Well, I don't know. I mean, we are talking about kind of vote with your fork, but like, what if you can't vote? What if you don't have the money? And like, my response to that is exactly. And it's the state's job and informed by a citizenry that's saying like, wow, we need different priorities here. And many EMT and, you know, food's important, but so's CPR. I mean, there's other resources I would be interested in and the ambulances that, you know, are available and what their response time is and the whole picture. And it's very interesting because my department, Environmental Studies, has just split into urban and environmental policy and planning. And it's really very progressive, take no prisoners. In my class last night, we just had a talk by a new faculty member, a researcher on the immigration of the expulsion or whatever you want to use from the Marshall Islands of his people. But what he did was he talked about the configuration of housing in Arkansas, which is getting to be a certain police in Arkansas, kind of a, in the diaspora, bigger than you know the population of the Marshall Islands, but also how the space is conforming, even given outside challenges. And what we're talking about is those outside challenges. And I'm not saying everyone should be like this, these little communities in Arkansas who have figured it out and good on them. I'm saying that they face tremendous challenges and he's making observations as to how people are coping. And wow, if we really want to look at this and appreciate this and talk about indigenous knowledge in terms of navigating the urban morass that's out there, I'm interested again in science. I'm interested in the research on this. And then I want to be an advocate for where we need to put our resources. And I know I have an idea of where those resources are, because I know I can go to the supermarket and I look at the price structure of foods. I look at the geography of the foods in that. I know that it's tied into a mega system. And that's why the responses, which are all over the place, 
and take the form of permaculture, take the form of pop-ups in terms of food pantries. We need to be su- supporting that and talking to our legislators and, you know, in terms of a priority for food. I mean, what we've been talking about this hour is like so many food choices on so many different levels. You know, we've talked about kind of that shared world on a you know, political kind of state level, you know, larger level. Then we've talked about, you know, literally, you know, what happens when we're at the 7-Eleven or picking our apples. And I think empathy. I think empathy is really what we need. And I think we only become empathetic when we are wise. We have practical wisdom, which means we are getting in there and doing something. So I mentioned the sunflower seed, but I would almost say that, you know, when when we go down the, not not everyone can grow their own food track. When we go down that track, we can't grow our own food, all of us. But what I'm saying is that you can at least, if you can't grow your own protein, you can at least eat it and buy it. And I almost feel that buying is more important than cooking that shopping is more important than cooking, that harvesting the dandelions, if that's all you got, because you'll learn not to do it in late season. You will learn that the hard way. There's knowledge there that that's more important than cooking. I know that cooking is kind of like the most radical thing we do. And I love Carlo Petrini. And actually my programs in Italy started out working literally with Carlo Petrini. Mm -hmm. Had us over for dinner. It was all good. And I'm still quite devoted. He's the most radical thing we can do is cooking kind of. And cooking for me is like opening up a can of soup and adding pepper. It's like, so I have a very, very generous definition of cooking. But the shopping, what happened is that happens is that that's where push comes to shove. You see the expense, you see the quality, you see the packaging, you see the people, you see so much. By taking that time to go shopping, you have a a full lived experience of how that system comes together in one place. Exactly. As always happens, I'm sure that we could talk for hours about this, and you've already shared so much with us. But with the bit of time we have remaining, you've mentioned a number of names and resources I'll make sure to include in the show notes. But are there any books or videos or anything that you would recommend that I point people to in addition to your own book? to find out more about food systems, about making these kinds of choices, about being engaged and involved? I can tell you what informed my work, of course, was work by, you know, Michael Pollan and Mark Bittman and and Jim Hightower and Julie Guthman, who talks about how we pathologize obesity. Like there is no obesity epidemic. Let's really deconstruct that. And I talk about it in the book. She has fascinating work on that. Sander Katz, you know, with all of his fermentation work and of course, Francis Morlapay and, you know, all of these kind of old time advocates, but also Carlo Petrini, Joel Salatin, of course, and then everyone you mentioned, but also Barry Schwartz, who's mm-hmm. written about practical wisdom and chefs, chefs who tell their stories like Ethan Stoll. But honestly, I would say that it's more or less the kinds of information of sources that are important. And I would encourage people, honestly, to look at university newsletters, like university and large research clinic newsletters, Berkeley and Harvard and uh, Mayo. And I don't, well, Harvard, definitely, I hardly agree with, but Berkeley a little bit more and Mayo some. 
and look at how they're digesting the recent research. And I think that's great. And I know it's speaking more to our, our actual food food choices. And I know we didn't get very much to like the actual production piece. And we were talking before, but I would just say anything you read and kind of like your own community, which advocates for legislates open space and preserving open space where you've got food production going on, either in kind of stationary farms or kind of the very dynamic permaculture, be political. And so and read that kind of literature because we have to keep open space open and we have to keep urban areas livable. And in the few minutes remaining, as I always like to end these conversations, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I think it's possible to live a food-wise life and at least try because that is where we need to be in the most gracious way of interpreting that W-I-S-E. And if everyone is trying much of the time, then we're going to get there. Well, thank you for that, Gigi, and everything else you shared in joining me for this interview on the Permaculture Podcast. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And that was Gigi Berardi. You'll find a link in the show notes to a page where you can find out more information about her, purchase a copy of the book, and a myriad of additional resources. I also have a copy of Foodwise to give away. If you're interested, send an email to show at permaculturepodcast.com with the subject Foodwise. Also be sure to include your name and mailing address. I'll randomly select the recipient at the end of October. I wanted to interview Gigi and have this conversation because after hearing about the Foodwise method, it reminded me of the ethics and principles of permaculture. The initial concept is quick to pick up and easy to teach. It provides a consistent way to talk with others about our interests, concerns, and how to resolve them. As a model and not a prescription, it's adaptable to a wide variety of situations, allowing room for us to make choices that best suit the resources we individually have available, whether we get our food from a farmer's market, convenience store, or by walking out to our own backyard. This is something I'll definitely be sharing with others in my personal life and revisiting in the future so that we can look and talk about our food choices more deeply. What do you think about Foodwise and what Gigi shared? Will you be picking up a copy of her book? Are there similar models, whether they're oriented around food or not, which you use in your personal life to navigate the many complex decisions we face every day? If you have any opinions on this or anything else, get in touch. Call or send a text to 717-827-6266, or you can drop me an email. Again, that address is show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. From here, the next interview is a conversation with Shantri Kassara of the Living Center, an eco-spiritual site located near London, Ontario, Canada. He joins me to share the ways he's reinvented himself and the Living Center over four decades of practice, engaging in ecological education and outreach, and how he's planning for the succession of the site and organization. Until then, spend each day making wise food choices that take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.